The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Monday, June 18th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president and his advisors, they are the ones who have sown the seeds of their possible destruction with their interactions with the Russians. Collusions or foolishness, it all remains to be seen. But to me, the discomforting thing, well, you know, beyond conspiring with an enemy to thwart democracy, but right behind that, in terms of discomfort, is that when it comes time for them to say and to elocute who it was that felled them, the names on their lips should be Muller and Rosenstein. But it will be something like Mueller and Rosenstein or Mahler and Rosenstern because in the history of scandals, there have never been more mispronounced names than Mueller and Rosenstein. In times of yore, we knew the name of the pale rider, plague, pestilence, famine, death. They came on the white horse. Imagine if the people at that time, half of them feared famine and half feared famine. So now with this investigation, we have a new name to add to the pot, to the ranks of the unspeakable, or at least the poorly pronounced. He's the FBI agent Peter Strzok. Does have a Z in his last name that is doing even less than Eric Trump does, but it is pronounced Strzok. Peter Strzok. Could be a little bit of a Strzok if you want to strike it as Strzok, but it's mostly a Strzok. This is how the name should be pronounced, unless the one doing the pronouncing is Rudy Giuliani, here is Giuliani on CNN State of the Union. Probe, this Russian probe that began by, with Peter uh, Stroh's in charge. What? I don't know. Maybe Giuliani was doing some day drinking. Nope. If you tuned in to Face the Nation, he said that three times. And that Russian probe is highly suspect because Stroh's and, uh, started it. He was switched from Hillary to that. Stroh's, Peter Stroh's, you're the president's chief defender, and you do not even come close to knowing the name of the guy who you are saying is out to get your client. This would be as if Ezra Pound kept prattling on about how the Hughes control the media, keep them out of banking, out of education, out of government. This is the answer to the Hughish problem. Ezra Pound didn't say. And there, they're over on ABC, and this week was Steve Bannon, who also had his sights on Peter Strzok. He, the Stork, who's a three-star general equivalent, mm -hmm. and Page deleted this. You know why? They knew it was a smoking gun. Here, very simple, very simple, very simple. Stork? Peter Stork? Sure it isn't an Ibis or an Egret who's out to get the president? Yes, that's it. The president is beset by the trio of Strzok, Stork, and Strohs. Makes me want to reach for the Strook 9. On the show today, I spiel about the very compelling Stephen Miller. But first, remember when George Costanza wanted to set his life right by doing the opposite? Just do the opposite. That's kind of the Trump policy agenda. Remember what Obama did? Now do the opposite. But there are lots of things that Trump can't undo because, unlike my next guest, he probably doesn't even realize that Obama did them or how Obama did them, or how popular they've become. The Legacy Do-Over, up next with Michael Grunwald.
The Trump administration's policy vis-a-vis their predecessor has been, if they were for it, we're against it, or in less 1840s gold prospector terms. Well, I'll quote Jeffrey Goldberg writing in his publication, The Atlantic. He was quoting a friend of Trump saying, quote, people criticize Trump for being opposed to everything Obama did, but we're justified in canceling out his policies. This friend described the Trump doctrine in the simplest way possible. There's the Obama doctrine and the fuck Obama doctrine, He said, where the fuck Obama doctrine? Well, let's check in on just how much in real, tangible, practical terms, the Trump agenda has fucked the Obama agenda. No one better to join me than Politico senior staff writer Michael Grunwald, because Michael Grunwald was on the show talking about an article that he wrote for Politico, Obama's hidden legacy. I want to check back in to see how much that legacy sustains. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hey, how you doing? I'm good. So on these huge items, like things like the Iran deal, health care or Obamacare, quite clearly President Trump has gone after the Obama agenda. But in other areas, we wanted to check in and uh, see what the scorecard says. So let's pick let's say Dodd-Frank. There was uh, recently an undoing of parts of Dodd-Frank. Was that an example of Trump undoing the Obama agenda? Well, I think it's an example of uh, how quite a lot of the Obama agenda has turned out to be quite difficult to fuck, <laughs> to use your, uh, <laughs> to use the Trump friends phrase. Um, even the Iran deal and Obamacare, it turns out that getting things done in Washington is really hard. Uh, Obama and his people worked really hard to over eight years to do them. Mm-hmm. And it's just as hard to undo them. You know, the major thrust of Dad Frank is completely unchanged. It really just kind of whittles at the edges in ways that uh, that really don't matter very much to the most sweeping financial reform since the Depression. And in fact, from what I understand, um, a lot of Democrats were on board with uh, the the rewrite of Dodd-Frank that went through. Right. Partly because it wasn't really a rewrite. I remember it. Had, right, It wasn't uh, a total rewrite. But what they did is they let they allowed smaller banks to, I guess, leverage themselves more. Slightly, uh, you know, it changed some of the sort of strict scrutiny for uh, for banks that had it used to be that they had to have assets over a certain level. It sort of reduced that level slightly, but it doesn't change the major thrust of, you know, Dodd-Frank requiring banks to hold more capital, requiring to have more stable, you know, longer term funding, uh, more liquidity, less leverage. Those are still in place. And the changes in Dodd-Frank really don't affect it at all. It does sort of change some of the data collection, which some people say might make it slightly easier for certain mortgage companies to discriminate in certain situations. But, you know, we're really talking about, you know, at the margins, stuff that reasonable people can disagree about and certainly not whole scale, you know, undoing of what really were extremely important and at the time kind of undersold financial reforms. Yeah, I love that phrase, by the way, reasonable people could disagree. Uh, (laughs) The only problem is there are no more reasonable people left. (laughs) If there were reasonable people, I'm telling you those guys could disagree. 
<laughs> well, it's always, you know, it's good politics for certain people to make it sound like, hey, you know, we at Trump is kicking ass mm -hmm. and we're, you know, repealing this big Obama legacy item. Uh, and it's it's uh, it's also good politics for certain people to say, hey, look, our Democratic Party is caving into Wall Street and uh, isn't this terrible? And, you know, they, they won't stand up and fight for Trump. Um, but if you just look at factually, you know, this was a very modest tweak to Dodd-Frank and it passed with bipartisan support. But the status quo of the Obama years is essentially in place. Yeah. Let's talk about here's something I didn't even realize was going on, closing the diaper gap. And as you reported a year and a half ago, President Obama, not even through appropriation or not even through actually spending money, just kind of through the bully pulpit, but using the bully pulpit not to bully, got private businesses to donate something like $75 million diapers to nonprofits. And I checked in. Jet.com, which teamed with the Obama administration, is still doing this program. So that seems like the diaper gap seems like uh, one thing, one legacy of Obama that Trump maybe even not thinking about. I think that's right. And I think there are, there's plenty of stuff like that, um, you know, sort of in the bowels of bureaucracy where speaking Trump of has diapers, shown, yeah, yeah, where Trump has shown very little interest in kind of getting his hands dirty and and trying to make positive change. Or if you, you know, if you prefer, even negative change. Yeah. There's been, you know, you look at his sort of deregulatory agenda, which has gotten a lot of attention, and people talk about, you know, Scott Pruitt at the EPA, Tom Price at Health and Human Services before he got bounced. Uh, we spoke a little bit about Dodd Frank, but there's certainly this sense that the Trump administration has been slashing regulations right and left, but it's just not true because that takes a lot of work. Um, they've proposed rulemakings. They've announced they don't like certain Obama regulations. And certainly there are some there were some Obama regulations that hadn't taken effect yet mm -hmm. that they were able to stop from taking effect. But no major environmental regulations have been actually repealed. Really? Um, even under thing? even under Scott Pruitt, I've been reading about well, I've been reading a lot about mattresses and lotions, but also everything he's done to lessen environmental regulations. Well, he's trying. Yeah. He's trying. He's started processes. He's opened rulemakings. But it turns out that just as it was very difficult to make these rules, it's very difficult to unmake these rules. There's a process. It's very laborious. It requires science and law. And if people don't like what you're doing, they can sue. And it takes years. If Trump is reelected, you know, eventually, presumably, he'll have the same eight years that Obama had. And some of this stuff will really start to change. But even in the, you know, the coal friendliest administration in history, you've seen, what is it now, 39 coal plants have shut down since Trump took office. Yeah. And another 32 have been scheduled for retirement. Yeah. Um, and this is the sort of this is partly because of stuff that Obama spent eight years putting in place a, a mercury rule, a soot rule, you know, the clean power plan, which is not in place because of the courts, not because of because of Trump as well as, you know, pushing clean energy through the stimulus, through his energy department. And these things, you know, they take a while to bear fruit, but now you're starting to see it. So if, you know, if Trump loses in two and a half years and we get a Democratic president, presumably all those same rules and laws will, will start being paid attention to again. Now, what about international affairs? President has much more leeway internationally. 
That's true. That's true. And certainly, you know, I wouldn't want to claim that this is my my area of expertise, but uh, but you can already see, for example, in my neck of the woods, I was in Cuba right when Trump was coming out with his uh, with his new Cuba rules, which once again were, you know, way less than advertised. Um, he really did not completely overturn everything Ob- Obama did, but tourism from Americans to Cuba has plummeted. Um, and you can really attribute that directly to Trump. Um, now, in some areas, for instance, the uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, which Trump got a lot of press where he stuck his fing- middle finger up to the world and and announced that we were going to be the only country in the world that, uh, that wasn't going to abide by Paris. Um, well, in fact, we don't pull out until November 2020. Um, so if again, if the next president wants to uh, wants to be in Paris, we're going to be in Paris. Now, there's one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, uh, the consequences of policy. And as I read your Obama Hidden Legacy article, I was thinking to myself, there must be millions of people who are benefiting from this. And maybe, you know, with poor people who need diapers, maybe there are overwhelmingly Democratic voters anyway, although, you know, I'm sure not totally. And so maybe it's priced in. But at some point, don't the uh, the actual beneficiaries or the actual losers in terms of policy decisions show up in terms of voting and popularity? I don't know. It doesn't seem like the cause and effect, we've helped improve the lives of millions of people, or we're now having policies that hurt the lives of million, millions of people, seems to be a huge gap between, and therefore, we think the president's doing his job well, or we credit the president for having done his job well or poorly. Well... You know, I may not be the right person to ask about this because, look, I always thought of myself as like a policy reporter. I write about policy and I thought about things the way you did. Look, I mean, Obama, you know, he was in office for eight years and people can like him or or not. But he inherited, you know, we were losing 800,000 jobs a year. And when he left, we were gaining 200,000 jobs a year. And Mm -hmm. we had added overall what was like 15 million jobs. Um, Crime was decreasing, but Republicans and Trump ran around saying crime was out of control. Teen pregnancy was the lowest ever, and yet it was, you know, a national crisis. And so it really did feel like policy didn't matter at all. You know, you have a president who's turned presidenting into such a kind of theatrical game. You know, he's doing stuff that violates so many norms, that's so egregious. He's, you know, he's paying off porn stars. You know, his charity's a scam, calling people names. He's attacking Republicans. He's attacking Democrats. And sort of everybody's got an opinion about it that, uh, you know, it's sort of hard to imagine that, you know, there are a lot of voters who are going to go into the booth and think like, you know, I really liked that diaper program. I don't know what happened to it. You know, was that was that bad policy by the president? You know, that jet.com? I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure that's going to be dispositive. Yes. And let's and let's remind people that Ivana Trump said that Donald Trump has never changed a diaper in his life. And Donald Trump has said, I don't do that. So I, you know, I'm just going to throw that out there. yeah well it's a it's a good example of how he doesn't like to do the dirty work yep (laughs) michael grunwald senior staff writer of politico magazine also the author of the new new deal the hidden story of change in the obama era thanks so much my pleasure and now the spiel stephen miller white house counsel intellectual architect, 
of the child separation at the border policy. You know, I'm going to say it. Call me crazy. But sometimes I think Stephen Miller can be, I don't know, I'm going to put this out there, a little tone deaf. You know what I mean? Our opponents, the media, and the whole world will soon see as we begin to take further actions that the powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. Well, I guess let me step back. That was when Stephen Miller went on the Sunday shows to defend his administration's losing streak on the travel ban. A couple of weeks after that appearance, a new version of the travel ban sprang forth from the administration with Miller playing a key role in the writing, as he had in the drafting of the original, and that travel ban was shot down. A Virginia judge agreed, as did the Ninth Circuit. Six months after that, Miller and his anti-immigration cronies wrote a third travel ban, and within a month, two federal judges had ruled against them as well. Eventually, a ban was written that passed scrutiny, or at least technically what did happen is the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a version of that ban can go into effect while the courts rule on it overall. Maybe for the one that went into effect, they just locked Stephen Miller out of the room during the drafting. Now, I think the media is pretty unfair to Stephen Miller. I mean, they never post a flattering picture of the guy. Never. Never in still photos or even in the extended live interviews where he is actually in charge of the lighting and the camera angle. Never looks good. And the late night comedians, oh, do they have a field day with this guy? They call him creepy or the kind of fellow who will try to upsell you on a casket or the kind of guy for whom finger tenting is his one release. I mean, it's just lookism, isn't it? I mean, to assume just from his appearance and his affect and his seeming propensity for such things that he's the kind of guy who doesn't have a man cave, but an underground lair. They don't know he has a lair. He's never invited them over to pop a brewski or slowly swirl a snifter of brandy as he lowers his head, but keeps unblinking eye contact with you with his beady beady eyes. Only, they only look beady from the outside. Inside, we don't know. They might not seem or feel beady. But now the Trump administration is engaging in a policy that is actually much, much less popular than Stephen Miller's travel ban. It's separating kids from their parents at the border. The travel ban, back when Stephen Miller gave that interview I quoted, it was a little less popular than it was popular. But, you know, over time, depending on how you word the question, the majority of Americans have shown support for some version of keeping out people from some countries. But polling on forced separation, the latest poll out shows that 66% of Americans oppose the policy and only 27% support it. The president himself says he opposes the policy, or at least he says it's not his policy and it breaks his heart that he has to enforce this democratic law. He said that again today. It's a longish clip, economy Anders, you know, it's Donald Trump talking. We could have child separation. We're stuck with these horrible laws. They're horrible laws. What's happening is so sad is so sad, and it can be taken care of quickly, beautifully, and we'll have safety. This could really be something very special. It could be something maybe even for the world to watch, just like they're watching our great economy, how it's soaring. They could watch this. We have the worst immigration laws in the entire world. Nobody has such sad, such bad, and actually, in many cases, 
such horrible and tough. You see about child separation. You see what's going on there. So there the president was calling it the Democrats' fault. It is not, by the way, that is a lie. Or as the New York Times describes it in a headline, Trump repeats falsehood that Democrats are to blame for separating migrant families. A repeated falsehood. That is my favorite Fleetwood Mac song. Tell me repeated falsehoods. Tell me sweet little repeated falsehoods. But you know, the president goes and he describes the child separation policy as horrible and heartbreaking. You know whose heart is breaking? It's Stephen Miller's heart. His little coal-like heart. I'm assuming that's not fair. To describe this policy as heartbreaking and horrible, I mean, to Stephen Miller, that would be like describing his baby as ugly, as an ugly little finger-tenting, glowering infant. It would be like that. Stephen Miller worked on child separation for a long, long time. And to have the president denigrate it like this, it's got to hurt. You know it hurts the guy. Usually, in a place full of ambition and agendas like the White House is. Everyone wants to take credit for an idea. But here's Stephen Miller. He is the one guy putting his hand up and saying, yep, it's a policy and it's my policy and no one will give him credit. No one will even give him credit for it being an actual policy. To fix this. This policy is not, by your definition, in any way cruel. It's not a policy. Our policy at DHS is to do what we're sworn to do, which is to enforce the law. Today, Kirsten Nielsen, the Homeland Security Secretary, answered questions from the White House podium. You heard what she said earlier. She tweeted this. We do not have a policy of separating families at the border, period. To which Stephen Miller must be thinking, what are you doing? It's my policy. It's mine. All mine. So what the White House is doing in response is what they did oh so successfully with the travel ban. They are trotting out their greatest spokesman, yup, Stephen Miller. Tomorrow, he will be on the New York Times Daily Podcast. And in that setting, his charisma will have to carry the day in audio-only form. I trust Stephen Miller. He is always the man to make a situation that much clearer. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname, just producer... Make sure all the words in the show are grammatical. And he consults the seminal text written by Shrank and White. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, is a huge fan of that gruff but lovable green ogre, Shrank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. He likes scary vampire author Brams Stronker. The gist. Hickory dickory dock. The mouse ran up the clock. The clock. Stroflunk. One, and down they came. Hickory and indeed Dickory Duck. Oomperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.